Hello, ladies and germs, and welcome to another scintillating episode of Never Stay Dead. I am beta co-host to Matt, <laughs> along with the uh, prestigious leader that we have here, the, the head of the pack. Uh, am I the alpha dog? Uh, you were the alpha dog last time you made such an intro. But anyway, I am Damien, <laughs> and uh, I am ready for some stintillation. <laughs> we're we're going to be talking about the classic, the single greatest Green Arrow story ever, according to a few people I heard, though I disagree with that out of hand. According to Mike Grell? Uh, yeah, according no. to Mike Grell. <laughs> Mike Grell's Green Arrow, The Longbow Hunters, which is the kind of miniseries that led into his long run on the character. Yes, but before we dive in, I'd like to shout out a few podcasts that I've been listening to a lot lately. Yeah. Uh, the first one is The Daily Rios. It's Peter Rios's podcast, and he now he's he's uh, switched it up with this new format where he records five days a week and then he puts it all together in one episode that comes out each week called the daily Rios digest. And I found it a really lively, interesting thing to listen to each week. He usually covers comics and usually talks about other stuff, sometimes about things in his life, movies, TV. Um, but comics always come back into the mix a lot. I look forward to it every week. So I wanted to shout that out. And another one I've been getting into, and for anyone who thinks some of our podcasts are overly long, um, a podcast called Into the Weird, which uh, I think has been running quite a long while, as far as I know. But anyway, their average podcast seems to be about two and a half hours long, and they go really in-depth on issues of Bronze Age comics, usually horror comics or weird comics, and they continually come back to uh, reading the Doctor Strange run, I think the one from Steve Englehart. Um, so two recent shows I listened to were one was about uh, two issues of Doctor Strange uh, by Steve Englehart and Gene Colan. And then another one was about their two favorite issues of um, What If? And that was really entertaining. Uh, so anyway, I highly recommend both those podcasts. And I just find it so interesting you're talking about Rios because he's been at it so long. I, like he was right. going at it before I knew it was called a podcast. So it's just like he's doing audio talks about comics and he's, I don't know. Yeah, he was vet. in a, a famous early comic book group podcast whose name mm -hmm. eludes me at the moment. And then he kind of went solo on the, the daily Rios. I think he might have done actual daily podcast for a while and then he kept the title even as he played around with his format yeah good on him <laughs> so as you were saying before i rudely interrupted uh we're taking a look at the longbow hunters um by mike grell pretty much by himself yeah did he have a colorist or did he even do the colors himself uh Julia, oh God, Laquament did colors. Ah, there it is. Julia Laquament. And there's a letter. And there's a letter. And he has an assistant, Lorene Haynes. Right. Though assistant in these days of comics might have meant more 
things we wouldn't think about now, like um, layering, pressing, just shuffling the pages to where they need to go. You mean in Photoshop or something? Well, there would have been no Photoshop. Right. Yeah. I mean, an assistant could mean anything. It could be just someone who helped them around the office. It might have been someone who helped, you know, ink in the backgrounds or something. Yeah. My understanding was a lot of assistants at this time in comic offices were doing some of the just like... um, the work of getting everything assembled uh, to to move to the next uh, person in line, but not necessarily doing what you consider art duties or anything like that. Well, okay. Well, it's probably not worth getting into. I was I, thinking just, an assistant in the studio, not an assistant at the DC offices. Okay. Yeah. yeah okay. So it's hard to, we, we don't know if this person, what kind of assistant this person was. Yeah. Anyhow, um, yeah. So, uh, and you have read it before, right? And I have never read it. Yeah, I read it a while ago, and I, I got the original prestige issues. This was originally three prestige sized issues, right? And uh, square bound, I assume. Mm-hmm. Um, they're pretty easy to find. I've seen them go on sale in a bunch of cons and a bunch of places for relatively cheap. So this is. Easy to pick up. The trade's actually harder to find. Oh, interesting. Huh. Um, well, I got it off of Comixology, so it is there. Yeah. And that's uh, how they have it there, is the trade version. Right. And I don't know. It's a, it's a beaut. It's, it's from by the... a lot of fans, it's considered a classic of 1980s comics, right? And yeah. apparently the first time Green Arrow actually had his own solo title... There's a mini series before this, okay, like four issue mini, but nothing but other than like... that. I think he was a backup back in the Silver Age, and then maybe uh, teamed up with uh, Green Lantern in the Bronze Age. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he was a different kind of character, I guess. I I don't I don't know a whole lot about his origins or what's earlier. I know there's a lot of people who do. I don't. I just don't know. I know the general take on him when they created him is they just wanted another Batman-like character. Mm-hmm. So he was a millionaire who fought crime, and he had a sidekick named Speedy, and he had an arrow car and all of that kind of stuff back right. in the, the early Silver Age or perhaps even the Golden Age. Um, Used a lot of trick arrows and all that, right. and they allude to a lot of that at the front of this book. Right. And then I, so I assume, because to my knowledge, it was when Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams wrote the Green Arrow Green Lantern comic or the Green Lantern Green Arrow comic Mm -hmm. that they turned him into kind of a, what's the right word? (laughs) Not just a liberal, but kind of a a certain kind of liberal, right? A very activist, yeah, uh, critical of the establishment kind of guy, which, made a lot of sense in 1969 or whenever when they did that. And yeah, I mean they used him as a contrast to to Green Lantern who was, you know, the military background and and more the straight arrow so to speak. <laughs> yeah, and I mean I think that lives I have yet to read that. I don't know <clears throat> how best to go about. I don't know cuz every time I've looked for a collection or something there didn't seem to be a affordable a single easy collection. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I have found uh, like Baxter paper reprints of them pretty cheaply. Okay. Of those uh, Neil Adams, Denny O'Neill. There must be, there must be trades of it out there. I saw a couple of Nimbai, but they were out of print. Pricey. Yeah. And so, out of print. And then actually, uh, there you go. There's an Mike, issue of it. No, no, this is different. This is Mike Grell with, uh, oh, right. Sorry, sorry to tell you, no, no, but uh, oh, it's no. obviously confusing because at the time, Mike Grell drew a lot like Neil Adams and they revived after it went out of circulation for a while. They revived the Green Arrow, a uh, Green Lantern, Green Arrow series, still written by Denny O'Neill, but now drawn by Mike Grell, who had, who at the time was still deeply influenced by Neil Adams, um, who had a Neil Adams-like style. But they set most of their adventures in outer space, I guess, in contrast to contrast with the older series. Probably as we were. This was uh, 1976. Okay, so we weren't in the Reagan era yet. But anyway, it was less socially relevant and more adventure in space. I confess I haven't reread any of it since the 70s, so I'm not sure. Is this close to when Grell was doing uh, Warlord? Yeah, he may have been doing Warlord concurrently. I'm not sure when Warlord started. Well, I have here issue number 49 of Warlord, which is from 1981. So he may have done it. It's close. Started it around just after this. I'm not sure how long this Green Arrow, Green Lantern. Also, in that time, like not everything's necessarily monthly. So it's even harder to. That's true. I think, yeah, this is published bi-monthly, the Green Arrow. Rather, it's the Green Lantern, Green Arrow one. Um, I... Uh, but Mike Grell was a little bit of a, a star artist at the time, maybe because Neil Adams wasn't around. Um, but he had, he he had sort of because you know I was reading fanzines at, at this period, and there were fans who were kind of obsessed with his, um, what you call it, his uh, Legion of Superheroes run, and then yeah. and then he also became even more of a, a cult. Um, artist writer he actually did his first doing his own writing as far as i know was on warlord and that's pretty well remembered is my understanding yeah and i think it ran for about a hundred issues which is a long time for a a sword and sorcery when all of other is the only successful you know swords and sandals kind of story from dc swords and sandals well that's another that before they used to say sword and sorcery they said swords and sandals (laughs) That included like historical movies with uh, people fighting with swords and stuff. Okay. Um, but this was definitely a, a fantasy. It kind of was a cross between Conan and uh, Journey to the Center of the Earth or something like that. Mm-hmm. But it had its own flavor. I mean, I remember liking it a lot and feeling like it was different. And maybe it survived because it wasn't a Conan clone. Um, so I, in my mind, he was kind of a star at DC and then he left and did a bunch of indie work. Uh, most, I think most well-remembered is his, his, uh, comic called Sable, which I don't have a copy of it in front of me, but before Sable, he did Star Slayer for Pacific Comics. I have an issue of that somewhere. <laughs> and it's similar. It's, it's like a warlord in space. Um, and and he didn't stick with it long. He let other people take it over. I think because he was more interested in Sable, 
which was a bit more down a down to earth kind of adventures of a non superpowered kind of uh, soldier of fortune. I think it's okay. been a really long time since I've read. It. I've rebought those because I've been told they're really great and uh, no collection of those. I imagine Gore Vidal and. Uh, yeah, I've been buying individual issues of that, and I've yeah. been meaning to try reading it. Um, Make so, the attempt. Yeah. Well, I just buy too many comics, so I don't get around to reading. I just all. the way you worded it was funny, is all. <laughs> I, I have good intentions and large boxes full of comics. I can't relate to that at. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so um, anyway, so I think the Sable thing would be interesting if you were really into. His Green Arrow run is is later Green Arrow one that they're about to talk about. That would be what led into Green Arrow, as far as I would understand. Yeah, I'm yeah. sorry I babbled on so long about it. No, I mean this is all great, and it's but it's the a irony is, take. so I really liked Mike Grell, and I stopped after Sable in my youth, and I never followed him back to DC. So I've never read any of his uh, most now most famous work, his Green Arrow work. Yeah, well, I mean, I think the reason his Green Arrow work is the most famous is more because of how superheroes proliferated and he's just, this is his big one attached to that, I guess. As well, I think his solo. Would you say he was part of a wave of more, with Green Arrow, of more mature takes on superheroes? Yes. I mean, he this came is. in right when everybody was starting to do. He was one of the better and earlier ones to do that, to take the more mature approach. This is 87. So it's after right. the year after Dark Knight. And I mean, if you think about it, it's really only months apart. Right. And right. And Watchmen might have just been wrapping up as this came out. So he yeah, might have been working on it before he saw Watchmen, or maybe he saw the first few issues of Watchmen while he was working on it. Also, depending on how involved he was or cared about some upstart British guy. Uh, right. Uh, well, I, I don't know anything about Mike Grell, whether he was the type to f be following other artists or not. At yeah. That point. Or which ones he would. Um, I'm, although I'm sure Watchmen made enough. There must have been a lot that. of talk about Alan Moore, even before Watchmen came out. He was already oh, yeah. like, I mean, was it V shot. that put him on the map? Was it what? V that put him on the map in a big way. Well, V has a weird publishing history where part yes. of it was published before Watchmen in England, mm -hmm. and then it was reprinted and completed in the United States. No, what put him on the map was uh, Swamp Thing. It was, duh. But I knew in, that. I knew in that. inner circles, there was also all the stuff he was doing in England, like the, the pros all knew about his work in England. Yeah, my understanding, like I understand, because my understanding of the printing history is that V was started so much earlier, I didn't know that it wasn't necessarily completed or whatever. And so I thought that was kind of what brought him up to maybe get him to Swamp Thing, I guess, is what I had in my head or something. Well, in know. a way, it might have, because... <clears throat> His Miracle Man, I know now we're off on a tangent on Alan Moore, Whatever. but it all connects, right? His Miracle Man and his, uh, and his V for Vendetta were appearing monthly in installments in a British comic that started in 1981, I think. Warrior, yeah. Oh. Warrior Man. I'm so close. Yes. <laughs> I've never seen so, one. So those so two together, particularly because they're so different and both so you know, the superstars of the warrior magazine um, probably grabbed him a lot of attention. Yeah. Um, but so this was part of that. What, what, what do you say? Bronze, 
dark and gritty reboot era. Right. But or is it the copper era at this point? For I'm always confused about the copper age and when that is and what what that's about. But I think I that's I think the copper age is the when people use that term the period between the more innocent bronze age and leading into that dark and gritty age. So what's 1990 called? I think that's where the dark and even, even though I'm thinking like X-Men one post, you know, like that's definitely different. Yeah. I don't really, no one has one single term for beyond. It's kind of sad in a way because it's fun to categorize things, but there doesn't seem to be a strong term. I feel like it should be called the foil age. The foil age. Right. Yeah. Uh, it fits. It stopped. I don't know. Um, yeah. I did notice that uh, <laughs> the Green Arrow Longbow Hunters does not have the Comics Code Authority on it, which would have been quite no unusual shit. in 1987. <laughs> the things that were said in this comic, I was like, oh, wow, you could not uh, publish this today, right. even though those are right. the villains. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No. So it was pushing the edge at the time. Yes. Um, and and DC must have been reading the waters because they were releasing a bunch of stuff without the Comics Code Authority, even though um, they were the last ones to stop using the Comics Code Authority, like around 2000 or something. Yeah. Them and Marvel, I think it was. I think Marvel months. stopped sooner than them in terms of actually putting it on the cover. I thought it was like within months of each other. Oh, I thought there was years. Well, anyway, that's not important. Well, but I'm I pretty know, sure uh, your average comic still had the Comics Code Authority on it in 1987. Marvel gave it up around like 2001, I thought. Okay. Well, then maybe they both stopped around the same time. Because it happened around when they were doing E for Evolution with New X-Men, I remember. Um, anyways, uh, does, does your original copies have like a, a mature reader's warning on it or anything like that? Oh, of uh, Green Arrow, of there the Green was, Arrow Longbow Hunters. Yeah, the covers somewhere had like suggested for mature readers, okay. relatively small font, but it was because the, the digital, digital trade has no such warning. No, probably in the comicsology description, it may have something. Which is funny to me because that prestige issue thing to me like felt more like, oh, you know, this is a mature thing. Whereas this right. just feels like another green arrow trade and it's exactly more yeah. warranted. There's no there's no warning at all or anything. And people don't care anymore. Though I feel like you open to the first real page of the comic because there's a lot of intro matter and they threw in some right. design stuff that does not fit the feel of this book at all. Do you mean this double if you go back a page? Oh, is that a real part of the comic there. No, I mean, this was added for the trade. I'm saying it's right. this like graphic design thing that doesn't fit the feel of this comic. Oh, true. It, it makes it look kind of light and breezy. Yeah. Yeah. We, for people on the podcast, we're looking at a screen of my comicsology version and there's just a, a very simple graphic of a arrowhead, a green, it's like on a green. diamond. You know, like, yeah. um, and then, but then on the first actual page, you're, you're, Plunged in kind of the, uh, well, I don't know, the kind of seedy, prostitution-y kind of side of Seattle. <laughs> well, that and Grell's art is, I don't know if it, how it compares to his other work, as I haven't read any of it. Right. But I mean, compared to even other comics of the age, even like Dark Knight Returns, um, 
which this is very much in that vein right like dark i mean this is a reboot of the character in a way or a new direction however you want to look at it this art is very this feels like an artist's art pay i don't know he's using a lot of colored pencils you can see a lot of the lines but it's very well rendered from an artistic perspective there's only a few frames where i saw the art looked less than stellar you know, I'm thinking as we're getting, we're looking at individual pages, but maybe for the sake of the podcast, we should give a, a quick overview of the plot before we plunge into details, a general <sighs> sense of what we're talking about. <laughs> okay, well, at a very broad level, this is a story about Diana Black Canary and Oliver Queen green arrow they've just they've either moved to or they're just visiting seattle but thinking about moving there and they seem to be in a new phase of their lives or something and they're they're very intensely entwined as lovers but uh, diana does not want to have children and she's going off to do her own investigation case and uh, oliver the green arrow gets sucked into kind of a a series of uh, mysterious murders of someone using arrows Mm -hmm. and that slowly um, his investigation and his dealings with the police slowly uncovers and opens up like an onion, a sort of uh, conspiracy that goes back to world war two and also involves at least one vet. There's some aspects that were unclear to me on my first read of this. But yeah, uh, involves some yeah. Vietnam vets, I think, or at least one Vietnam vet who's used as an assassin by these people from World War II. And they are tied in with some people. They end up being tied in in some way with the um, investigation that Diana Black Canary is doing. And she gets captured and tortured, which leads Green Arrow to start killing people. And eventually we learn this all dates back to this group of what's the name of the organization that eventually became the CIA, but wasn't during world war two sort of rogue agents who were discover that uh, one of the people in the uh, Japanese camps, you know, that we had during world war two was involved with the Yakuza and somehow was supposed to have $2 million. And eventually they torture him and his family and get the $2 million away from him and then set themselves up as sort of half legitimate businessmen and half criminal cocaine dealer, cocaine smuggling stuff. It's kind of complicated. (laughs) So, um, but basically that, so all this kind of layers of conspiracy is uncovered. And then the other big thread is there's someone the, I think the child of the person who was tortured uh, to get that $2 million is taken to Japan and trained as a bow woman, uh, an archer, trained her whole life to take revenge, to get her honor back, and to kill these people who stole the money from the Yakuza. And I know from reading, <laughs> reading like New 52 Green Arrow, she continued to be a character. Um, her name is Shadow. And so I assume we learn a lot more about her in uh, future story arcs. But she's a mysterious and kind of compelling character. To some extent, maybe there's cliches about (laughs) the way the Japanese 
and honor and all oh. of that work. Who knows? Uh, and, I don't know uh, enough about such things. <laughs> erotic mysticism and uh, the yeah, there's a lot of right. There's a lot of stuff that people would point to and be like, that's bad now. And I'm not saying right. they're wrong, but this is done at a level where and the the overall story is still strong, but there's a lot of elements going on here. Though with all that plot that you're talking about, and as complex as this comic gets, I feel like the plot takes a backseat to the motifs and the themes, which is not great necessarily but it's how it's presented and so this so what first, do you see as some of the motifs or some of the themes well i mean i mean i mean first there's something to the location and that this is seattle not um arrow or star city right right and there's a whole there's a whole sense when you read it that he is like a vigilante in our real world except that people put up with him whereas i think he would a guy walking around with a bow and arrow might immediately get arrested there's a lot of apprehension to him but another big thing in the first two pages is they're talking about hunting and being a hunter and he is one of the hunters in the story and they're recognizing this um element to it which gets to the killing that you're talking about later and he's talking about how he'd hunt and how the crimes that he used to deal with were so goofy and how things are so much more serious and gritty now. Like they right. they address that at the front of this comic to make the transition as they move through. It's really ham-fisted, actually. Yeah, and the the uh, relationship with Diana. Wait, is it Diana or Diana? Diana. Diana. The relationship with Diana Black Canary is very. I don't know. It, it feels a little on the nose or something. Does that make sense? Or how do you mean? Because I mean, they're in a relationship. So I don't know what you mean by it being on the nose. Well, like the way they talk to each other is almost too direct. And yeah. And like, um, it doesn't feel like people who've been in a relationship a long time, although that's what they're supposed to be. Right. A little uh, Hallmark card, not Hallmark card, but I don't know, just sort of by the numbers to a, a degree. Well, they're just, they talk to each other in like this sequence that we're looking at where he, where um, Oliver is recounting his history, or maybe it's a few pages later. He's recounting his history and it's essentially to catch up new readers with who the heck is the Green Arrow? What's going on? What's the legacy? Like they kind of have a little synopsis and they talk about the island a little bit and how he became right. the Green Arrow, but they weave in the hunting thing again and a couple other things that are come up later, but it, it's there and he's talking to her is the framing. And then you realize she left because she's heard this. She knows this all. Right. Um, and they also talk about the connection to Robin hood and there's that painting. Right. Like you said, the house nice. he's living in and looks like a castle a little bit, like a mini castle. <laughs> well, and they call it, um, Sher um, Sherwood castle. Oh, did they? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, I apologize to the people listening to the podcast that I didn't give it two reads because I, I was, as I was working my way through it, I was looking, since there is a lot here, I was sort of trying to figure out certain aspects and maybe I missed other aspects of the story. Well, and it's very easy to do for a number of reasons. A, um, another thing I didn't like in this book is Grell has a number of confusing layouts where he'll mm -hmm. have a two page spread and you're supposed to read across the top it 
and then the bottom like the two pages are split or um there'd be other elements like that where the layouts were unlike other like any other i had run across and i had to reread the the two pages to understand what was happening because i i lost track which right at this point i've seen so many layouts that i've heard people complain about I'm like oh no your eye goes here da, da, da. like i i have it down and if grell's throwing me a curveball at this point i can't follow it i can't imagine anyone else's either like he did not do his layouts properly from time to time i agree and and later in the book I had to do some real double takes. I mean, it's way near the end of the book, but there there was a scene with two helicopters and I lost track of who was in which helicopter and mm-hmm. what was going on. And that was actually very important. And then later I saw, oh, this guy's back at his office. So he must have been in uh, the other helicopter that didn't get blown up and <laughs> that kind of thing. And, and um, there were also scenes with arrows being shot where Grell sort of... Right, because you have multiple archers and so right. knowing... who what arrows going where is important right um and you had to like notice it was kind of clever like there was a scene where you had to notice that one archer had shot the string of the bow of the other archer so they couldn't shoot anymore yeah i i remember that one. i had to do kind of a double take to figure out what had happened happened i had to look that page over five times before i could figure out what happened yeah, there, there's there's that, and there's also with the complex plot you explained earlier very well. Um, there are a lot of transition points that I could not follow. Like um, when we move from because when we initially meet Shadow in book two, she's trying to kill Oliver, and then book three they're like apprehensively working together, and by the end of the book they're killing people together. And I was trying to track the relationship and I didn't understand how things moved because there's like an implication in a caption that was reiterating the entire like metamorphosis of their relationship. And frankly, there are moments in this story that are poorly done. Like the narrative is not poorly there. I think Mike Grell being on this solo meant that he had a lot more control and mm-hmm. i feel like like this is a time where i wish an editorial person would come and say no <laughs> you right. have to establish these things more clearly because it this might does not be really- that mike grell coming back from indie comics kind of was in a position of saying i'm not going to be edited heavily or something which I'm is just guessing ho- hilarious again for the comparison of the time because this is when uh like frank miller was doing all of his strongest work but he was also receiving a stronger editorial hand because he wasn't frank miller yet and in 1987 well like when he I did mean, dark knight returns was he not i mean i know right i know nothing about like that creation i mean but if you, it, it does seem like compared to miller and um and alan moore he just and maybe it's because of editorial or something else but there are just moments where you wish an editor had said you know back up here and let's make this more clear like even though both miller and uh, moore had very complex plots you didn't lose track (laughs) the Mm -hmm. way you do sometimes here and 
these are the things I dislike the most about the book. But there's so much Grell does here. I mean, A, that plot is very complex and it plays through. There's some hinge points that don't work great. But I mean, what a story. Mm -hmm. And then I was just going to say, like, just in the art, there's a number of landscapes in here that I feel like if you pulled out and just blew up are the sorts of things I'd see in an art gallery alone. And they're just panels in this book. Right. And it... If in the context of most comic books of the time and what comic book readers are coming out of, this is kind of a radical approach to a superhero book because it's it's done in this more in terms of flashiness, it's very low key, right? It's mm-hmm. it's more like someone uh drew a very sensitive artistic sketch of a rainy day or something, but then there happens to be a a realistically shaped human being in it who's a superhero with arrows (laughs) you know there's not huge muscles there's not fists coming out at you into the into your face and all of those kinds of um, you know superhero cliches that you would have expected to see i feel like if this had come out a few years later it would have been under the vertigo imprint like yeah right there's that but also the artistry in this book is just unlike any other book i've seen it's really something to look at and it takes a while to drink in the pages and kind of appreciate all the details but there's a lot of detail on display and in a way that i don't know like there's a lot of backgrounds that fade away a lot of kind of shades and whatnot but i mean the figures the expressions the the action usually is there and there's a few misses but by and large what's on display is something special yeah and there are moments of mixed media where he clearly drew on a different kind of paper you know maybe some paper that has a special texture or something and then glued it down onto the page Um, i'm surprised that he was not doing the coloring because it feel the colors feel like they were drawn on the page at the same time as it was penciled Uh uh-huh I think there's some Bristol board. And, yeah, that's uh, some kind of special board. I don't know. If, yeah, Bristol board might be the name. But like here, the one we're looking at right here, there's these panels in color, and then there's this kind of artistic sketch mm-hmm. um, that looks, you know, very grainy or texture has texture of the paper on in the pencils. Well, and the colorist doing colored pencils and just leaving leaving it with the color pencils basically is not something I've seen before. Yeah. I'm trying, I can't figure out if it was all done in pencil or just some panels are in pencil. Some panels are clearly done just in pencil without ink on top of it. Yes. And others are done with a very fine line Mm -hmm. that could be enhanced pencils, or it might've been done inking, but with, with a very like uh, narrow quill with lots of little lines or something. See, I I swear it's like a thicker pencil line or something like an uh-huh. HB. What would that be? Three or something like it's a heavy pencil, but it, I I don't think they're because I mean, do they even credit an inker? They don't. But Grell might have did done his own. own inking. He certainly did in a lot of other. I mean, when I look at this page it that we're looking at at the moment. Um, half the panels are in a completely different style than the others. 
I'm guessing there was some ink and some pencil all over the place. And then some of these panels like that are kind of flashbacks. This also was a scene that I didn't understand that well. Um, mm -hmm. I think, I think this is a, a flashback to the same people in the conspiracy when they were younger and they maybe hired this Vietnam vet as an assassin. And he's also killed a woman in bed. And I don't, I don't know if that's what. Yeah. There's a lot of implication. I think this comic is really asking you to slow down compared to a number of other comics that are using words and art to convey things almost doubly. This goes a very different direction. And I think it sings in certain moments and fails in moments that we spoke about earlier. I do really like the inclusion of shadow and how they artistically display a lot of that. It's a lot of heavy blacks. And what really took me was um, the archery details. I mean, uh, shadows bow and arrows and quiver are all different from Oliver's because they're from different traditions. Like this right. was very meticulously researched. And they talk about what the materials, her bow and her arrows are made of. Right. And you can his. see the difference of materials. It's right. A lot of else. care has been put into those details and a lot of other details. It's funny though. There's times where his art also looks clumsy, like beautiful, yes. but clumsy. I don't know. I know um, there's a scene, I believe we're looking now at the second of three chapters of this. And there's a scene in a uh, police chief's office where his head and hand are completely out of perspective with each other. And it is mm -hmm. the worst panel of this entire work and possibly Grell's career. I don't know. It's really bad. <laughs> Must be somewhere around here. Yeah. yeah no, there, there's moments where it just gets awkward, but I, I think, you know, he just, he's, he's willing to have it, some imperfect drawings and then move on from them. Um, I, I did think his relationship with the police was really interesting. And um, I have to confess that. Uh, so as I was reading this at times, it felt kind of slow and I mm -hmm. didn't see where it was going. And I felt almost bored. <laughs> And, and, uh, but by the time I got to the end of the book, I was like, wow, this is a really cool thing now that I know everything that has happened. You know what I'm saying? Sometimes, yeah. And I, I think in the long run, that's better because when I sometimes I love a book th throughout the journey and then I get to the end and it's like, oh, that kind of made the whole book seem less good. <laughs> so it's great that this has a, an ending that makes the whole reflects back on the whole book as being, oh, this was all very cleverly put together. And that launched me into starting to read the next volume. And I've only read like two and a half issues. And I, I assume you've read a lot. but um, I've read none of it. Oh, you haven't? Okay. But I thought uh, on reading it that, so it, it's the next volume is... Green Arrow number one, and the, the the trade volume is called Hunter's Moon. I feel like he's playing with a lot of the same themes. He's not drawing it anymore, though. Mm -hmm. But I think his writing gets even better. So it almost felt like, um, in hindsight, that that the um, Longbow Hunters was just Mike Grell warming up to his subject, and now he's got even more to say. 
and uh, perhaps it's going to structure it even better. I'm curious to know if some of the um, dicier moments and dialogue carry through. That's a good question, because it, it may have been more general audience at that point. It, what's funny, too, is that we're looking at some of this volume one of Grell's Run with, who is it, Ed? I didn't get to read it. Ed Hannigan is the artist, um, and it's inked by Dick Giordano. And I know a number of artists met this, but this looks like stock standard Vertigo art to me. Like, Yes. Yeah. And I don't know if there's a good reason for that, if those talents carried on to other Vertigo books, but it just looks like that kind of a book. You know, I think um, Ed Hannigan was, a, as far as I remember, a kind of workmanlike person who mm -hmm. was not like a superstar talent, uh, but could just, he could tell a comic book story. Um, and then they put uh, Dick Giordano on it, who I don't know if he still was the editor in chief at this time, but was a big star at, at DC comics. So they put a top inker on top of a workman like uh, artist, I think. Mm -hmm. But anyway, it's more of a standard looking comic, but it, it continues these, uh, themes about a certain angle on street crime and, you know, sort of linking street crime to more complex issues and getting involved in a lot of moral gray area because the, the, the story is mostly about someone who was in prison for um, torturing little girls. And he's now out of prison because uh, he's going to get a new trial. And so the cops in Green Arrow think he's guilty, but is he really guilty? Um, he's kind of a dick. <laughs> so anyway, it's uh, it's a, intriguing. I'm assuming he will end up not being the actual killer, but right. or perhaps there are two, and there'll, there'll be some kind of surprise. I'm thinking. Gotcha. I mean, but I'm just guessing. <laughs> no idea. So wow. anyway, I think it's. I think by getting to the end of this. Uh, the the longbow hunters i i just got it it leaves me very excited for more mike grell i do like the redesign of green arrow um also moving him away from a standard skin tight outfit into this archer's hooded kind of thing he's still all right. green but and if you if you took away his green mask <laughs> mm -hmm. he he just would be like some nut some nut, some creepy guy who goes around the city dressed as an archer. And what I can't understand, though I do understand, is his bow is like a, it's just like a wooden longbow. It's, right. th there's nothing to, later iterations of Green Arrow, and it's funny because he goes back from like compound to uh, just a longbow to, Seem to use a short bow in one issue, and that was weird. But this bow looks like uh, what you'd hand a beginner. It looks like it it's it doesn't look like it's arced enough or curved enough to have more than like forty pounds of weight behind it. Kind of goofy that he's walking around with this thing and all the things that happen when I'm like that looks a little unsturdy. Like I have a I have a compound bow downstairs that's. Ah, so you know more. more. So he did some research, but then he maybe uh, fell down on actually drawing the bow. Well, it's funny because his research is actually based in a way that fits Green Arrow very well, which is very Hollywood based. Um, there's actually a lot of archery research that um, came 
in the early 2000s where they actually found out a lot of um, medieval archers actually didn't do it the way you see in the movies. They actually knocked their bow on the other side. They didn't use a quiver and they'd hold uh, extra arrows in their hand. Hmm. That's Very not efficient. <laughs> well, comparatively to the quiver where things would always fall out and not really work. It wasn't oh, bad. Okay. And I mean, but I, this is the tradition what was understood and so much of green arrow is actually based on robin hood interpretation uh, like movies of robin hood or something movies and or storybooks with potential right. pictures and a lot of that and shadow uh is drawn very much in the asian archery tradition with oh. the, like there's small details in everything like oh this is great if you go back one there's that one panel at the bottom with the two bows. Mm -hmm. You can see the different details. You can see the difference of the wood types. Um, Cause like Oliver has a very like Oak looking just like curved, just one flat curve. Right. Where shadow has this um, lighter wood and um, it's knocked with whatever it is. And it has, it's not just one, curve but it's kind of a curve mm -hmm. and then flattens out to the other way which actually creates more pressure as you pull back and it's actually longer right and it looks like it's made of uh, more than one kind of wood maybe yes uh, um which the other thing more... i just noticed because you're talking about quivers she doesn't have a quiver she has something well, else that she, she holds her arrows in. it is a quiver it's a quiver of a yeah. different design that's uh more asian where they just knock in this little like um wooden pallet it's like it's and, it's, it, and there's yeah. a sling right it's, it's it's like it's in a piece of wood or something so that it won't right. fall out whereas we just see him climbing up a ladder it looks like you would actually have your arrows falling out of your quiver in that position he's in in the middle of the page. I mean, he would, but it's not going to happen in a Green Arrow comic. Right, or... right. But now that you point that out, I hadn't thought about it before. What's um, also interesting is um, no trick arrows or anything, but his right. little quiver has more arrows than hers. But That's he's going to lose pretty much all the fights. Right. So one of the cool aspects is... We don't make out Green Arrow to be the absolute best. It's not the superhero cliche where our hero, he is older and maybe not has not practiced archery as much as she has. But also no. because he's older, his uh, many of his reactions just aren't as good. Well, and he didn't start till he was, what, 20-something? Uh, yeah. And she started when she was barely old enough to pick up a bow. Right. But in most comics, you know, he's insanely, naturally gifted, right? Well, and there's one detail in Kevin Smith's when um, after Grell's done. Oh, I've they, never read the Kevin Smith either. There's one detail that I always thought was hilarious the way Kevin Smith wrote it. He's like, you know, there's a pound, there's a poundage where people start, you know, 40, 30. And there's a poundage where people get more advanced. And then the pros will use this poundage. And then the Olympians use this poundage. And then guys trying to impress their girlfriends use this poundage. <laughs> but I use this poundage. And it's just like, <laughs> like a scale above all that. Yeah. And it's just like, what? <laughs> right.
more significant would really rather than Olympics and things would what does what poundage does someone who's hunting with an arrow use? Well, and that's the thing is a um, you'd be using a. I said I have a. I don't have a compound bow. I have a. Uh-huh. I have a straight. I cannot think of the word. Um, but if you're hunting, you are probably using a compound bow, which means you can, you're on like an exponential amount of poundage over a non compound bow just because of the mechanics of it all make it a lot more that, but the poundage in Kevin Smith's is to that level from a straight bow, which is hilarious because if he was actually pulling that and shooting that the way that they show it, his arrow would kill and or explode someone on impact. I worked out some of the (laughs) physics of it. I was like, he's shooting faster than a 45 like which is funny because there's something in secret wars with hawkeye that's a Mm -hmm. very big moment where um one of the thor villains one of the constructors Uh is the guy with the chain i can't remember oh the wrecking crew the yeah yeah i know who you mean the guy with the chain what's his name anyway yeah, yeah well, he's saying like my armor can you know stop a bullet, and Hawkeye's like at this range, this arrow is going to do more damage than a bullet, which for a good archer made a lot of sense. Like this was a really weirdly researched detail that was just uh-huh. in the middle of Secret cool. Wars, and the Wrecking Crew guy's like, "Oh, I can take it," and Hawkeye just lets one arrow go, and it's just in this guy's abdomen. It's nothing uh-huh. fatal or anything, but it penetrates his armor, and the guy freaks out and. <laughs> It's one of my favorite details in comics. Just a different archery moment. But um, yeah. Hmm. But coming back to this, there's a lot of beautiful archery fighting in here. And what's really cool, too, as opposed to a lot of superhero comics, uh, the fights are very fast. A couple blows and Oliver's laid out. Or there's scenes like this where they're just, it's mental, right? They're just looking at each other, trying to decide who's going to do what. Well, I really liked a lot that that he is a middle-aged <laughs> guy and everything. And I know that for certain people who raved about Green Arrow, that was a, an important aspect of him. And they were really upset in New 52 where they made him young again. Yes. And and, uh, and I can see that now, now that I've read this. I mean, it, it just, it's part of the flavor of it. There's a lot about aging in this book that I thought was really interesting. So, I mean, there's this in this fight, you know, he gets laid out and he says, you know, I'm 43, I'm getting older and I'm getting slower. Right. Which also goes to Diana talking about, because earlier, um, Oliver and her are having sexy times. Yes. And he says he wants to have children and she says she won't. And Oliver says, but you love kids. And she says, that's why I won't, because I won't be raising orphans. Because she's pointing to the danger of their job and saying, like, that's part of the thrill. But we don't know if we're ever coming back when we go out. And you can't ask me to give this up, as I wouldn't ask that of you. And it was this very kind of real vigilante moment that we don't get often. But her saying, like, one of these nights we're going to go out and one of us is going to die. And to the name of our show, um, like none of the main characters really die in this book, but the idea of morality is so much more mortality. You mean, what did I say? Morality. 
Yeah, mortality. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry I just want to make no. me clear on that since it's an important word here. <laughs> no, it's very important. Um, it's so much more felt in this book. And the danger and the moments where they get hit feels so much more impactful because that that idea of what's tense is there as opposed to reading, I don't know, X-Men now where mm. characters are being killed every issue and it doesn't mean a damn thing. Yeah. So and when uh, uh, the Black Canary is captured and tortured, oh. that is extremely impactful, unlike in your average comic. Well, and there's implications of sexual abuse too. well yes but it's funny because either in this comic or in the follow-up that i read the first two issues of they emphasize she was not raped <laughs> but that it's still maybe that was because you maybe because you're right maybe the continuing series was back to being child friendly or something not necessarily child friendly but maybe but you know toned down uh, yeah more palatable for your average audience than this which is this is I don't know how to put it like I've read edgier comics, I guess, but I mean, there's something brutal and visceral about this comic that right. I don't think I've read many that hit that. And there's also a lot of racial slurs and things and treatment of mm -hmm. women overall is not great. Right. <laughs> in this book. There's also a vibe to me that I associate with movies in the seventies of like um, death wish and stuff okay. like that that the world is full of these brutal criminals on the on the street level mm -hmm. and um there there's a certain kind of paranoia about crime being everywhere and it, it just reminds me of that and i i thought of that i don't know why i kept thinking of that but that this is the kind of book when you read the books too many books like this because it's more like real life rather than you know batman and the joker or whatever Mm -hmm. You start you start feeling more distrustful of your fellow human being, <laughs> people on the street, or you know, it feels like crime is just around the corner. Uh, yes, too much of this might make you want to buy a gun and put it under your pillow or something. <laughs> Which was interesting in the intro of this. Um, uh, who wrote the intro? Right. Uh, Mike Gold wrote the intro, which I have not read. At least yeah. the, of my version. Michael talks about um, Growl like fishing out things and pulling some things out of his couch, and one of them's a gun. And like, there's a sense of a different time going on there. But uh, I have a feeling Growl would be perceived differently in today's world. Right. Well, and who knows where Growl has gone politically at this point? Didn't he pass? No, he's still alive. I've heard him interviewed on podcasts. I think he's um How bad. He's one of those people, you know, who's no longer in the mainstream of comics, but he's kickstarting things like like things having to do with Sable. Uh, you know, okay. things that he owns, he's kickstarting, I've I've heard. But um this is a very political book. On one hand, it has this kind of the the fear of crime which may or may not be associated with a conservative point of view, but it also has the, it, it deals with the Iran Contra kind of stuff, which was a huge deal in the uh, mid eighties, right? With Ronald Reagan and um, what was the name of the Colonel North, Oliver North. So this is very topical <laughs> and, uh, People might go back and read this and not think about politics in this way, but 
it's an extreme for at, at the time it would have been an extremely strong political statement against american intervention and american uh you know willingness of certain american political entities to to do all kinds of underhanded illegal things to support anti-communist groups around the world yeah i mean yes i don't know the the vibe i also got was especially here we're looking at a page after um we see dinah abused where right oliver goes the other way and kills her abuser and effect effectively right. flips a switch and becomes the hunter and right i mean i think mike grell is vibe. sort of some criminals just deserve to die which given the setup it's hard to argue but so this kind of point of view can go either way can evolve into you know let's be tough on crime mm -hmm. and it's okay to be kind of brutal with criminals because criminals are bad guys which as we see nowadays can sweep up all kinds of innocent people who are mistaken for criminals for one reason or another into a violent situation well and i don't know how the police chief was supposed to be portrayed because there's a very direct conversation about the fact that um the guy who was abusing diana is, is the guy who is going around and killing the prostitutes and you know what i missed that the the police chief i was says, so busy trying to follow other plot elements i missed that he was the guy like i almost forgot about early scenes in the book of people killing prostitutes well because it's so disconnected frankly it almost doesn't matter um but the police chief has this bit where he says like you know this guy is a problem and he's killing people but he's killing prostitutes and with the aids crisis going on that's not necessarily such a bad thing which is <laughs> that's Reagan's a weird take. way to look at it yes well, what also, he's saying is prostitution has gone down. I think he was saying prostitutes yeah. are afraid to go out and ply their trade, and so there's less AIDS. But well, I think was... he was saying prostitutes are getting killed, so there's less prostitutes to spread AIDS. Either way, I didn't read it that way, but either way, it's a very uh, uncomfortable point of view. <laughs> right. And I don't know if the police chief is supposed to be a bad guy or a good guy in this comic. Right. He's just he's in it so rarely that like I don't know, and so what the politics you're supposed to take away from this book I'm unsure of, and maybe that's intentional. But he's definitely the the yeah. There's all kinds of uneasy things on that side of things, but on the other side, it's very clear that members of the American government are um, are working with these serial killers cocaine dealers and the rest to any way they can to sm smuggle money to the Contras to uh, fight Nicaragua, um, which is exactly what happened, you know, not to my knowledge with serial killers, but I mean, smuggling things to the Iran, the Contras from, from funds in Iran. I and mean, it's very specifically mentioned. Yes. So, but I did feel kind of, so, I mean, on one point, my one point is people look at current comics and because there's certain sexual politics in it, they somehow think that there was never politics in comics before. Um, but this is just one very clear example of this. At the core of the crime in this comic, it's, it's the underhanded uh, political machinations of 
the U.S. government. You leave me with no choice but to quote Seinfeld. Uh, Who are these people? <laughs> They're people doing what Ronald Reagan wanted them to do without um, without trying not to leave a trail that Ronald Reagan could be blamed or his other top officials. Right. I... I don't know. I the people who say there weren't politics in comics tend to be people who don't know how to read. Right. But as I on the other hand, it does also seem to partake of this sort of paranoia and ex, a, a create viewing crime in a certain way that allows you to be very brutal with criminals. Yes, he killed someone who's a killer and a torturer, and I don't really feel bad about that. But the angle on it is that these people are all around us, and so it it allows you to change your philosophy on how you treat treat criminals in general. Perhaps it's also a very odd scene early in the book where he uh, he shoots arrows at these thugs, including three arrows into a guy's earlobe, which seemed impossible mm-hmm. to me. A certain uh, freeness with brutalizing criminals seeps in here and there. Yeah, I, I I mean, as if every mugger is, I don't know. I mean, comics have always had this weird thing because even very liberal comics writers in the seventies always started comics with some group of thugs threatening people, like mm-hmm. this idea that everywhere you go, there's these um, thugs that are going to try and kill you for your wallet or something which is i don't think how most crime actually happens (laughs) no i i do think it's interesting because you're talking about the brutality i feel a lot of that is the detail in the art though Mm -hmm. because this idea of like you know piercing a guy's earlobe with arrows or some of the other shots he he does to you know take some muggers down and whatnot as opposed to the violence wrap-up that happens later is interesting because if you think about any standard fare the superheroes are usually breaking a limb or doing some it's decent damage but it's it's never uh you know it's never explicit that limbs are broken right well it's certainly not in comics in the 70s and 80s right and so i I'm curious what you thought about Dinah throughout this book because she's handled. Well, the way. one strange thing, I mean, she's off on her own solving a case, but then she does need to be rescued. So there, there, there is, even though she is a, she's her own woman, but she also does end up being the person, you know, the violence against her body, whatever it is that actually happened is the motivating force for the change in his sort of, moral compass and how he fights crime well and also this moment in here is why for a good while she can't use her sonic scream okay which isn't actually we don't ever see her use her sonic scream at all in this book no before or after right but it's later used to explain that she can't do that and it doesn't come back until after growl is done with the character I don't know if there's any other book at the time that like pulled her out and had her use it though, or something like that. But yeah. So, I mean, I guess I found the page where he starts shooting at the muggers. And of course, one of them has a, they all look like punk rockers or something. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and he shoots one through the hand, one through the ear. 
mm-hmm. another one i don't uh, right under the crotch right under the crotch or it could possibly actually be grazing the crotch area and then all these that's more than three arrows that's like one two three four five six seven eight nine arrows to the guys guys uh here <laughs> anyway they're portrayed as completely willing to kill people just to get their wallet and i'm sure that happens every now and then but i it's not the kind of crime that i actually hear about um in day-to-day life and it it is a cliche of comics but it just feels different in the context of this story yeah so with the treatment of the muggers i don't know if it's just partaking of the cliches of comics or if if we're getting kind of a message from mike grell that you know criminals are in real life need very rough treatment because they are all vicious killers well he's ramping up the hunter idea and that green arrow is hunting them but he's doing so without actually taking them out or doing them super serious harm but as we go through the comic it ramps up and it ramps up and then it it kind of hits a point at the end of the second book where he kills and throughout the third book because he's killed his ability to kill again is there and and like it's a different it's a different vibe and that's supposed to set him to where I believe we go into the series and that he's yeah. a superhero willing to kill because it's these very moral consequences. Right. He's not Batman. He's a guy with a bow and arrow. But the weirdest part that really disturbed me, and I think it was very on purpose by Mike Grell to make everything morally gray, mm-hmm. is he kills a bunch of people, mostly kind of flunkies of the evil guy. Mm-hmm. And then he comes face to face with the government guy who says, mm-hmm. who, who's pouring all the cocaine down a ravine. And he says, oh, well, there's Enemy no evidence against me. And, uh, and I'll just do this again. We'll find another way to smuggle money. And Mike, uh, not Mike, <laughs> Oliver Queen uh, does nothing to him. Mm-hmm. But in a way, I mean, this guy does not commit the violent acts himself, but he is entangling the U.S. government with all these killers and rapists and serial killers. Uh, And he just walks away scot-free. And he hands hands Green Arrow Mm $200,000 in uh, laundered money. Mm -hmm. And like... I just felt <laughs> the the, the uh, superhero guy in me felt he should have found some way to pin it on this guy or do mm-hmm. something to this guy or make it so this guy can't do this again. But he who's really the evil, the most evil in a way because of mm-hmm. his uh, morality play uh, just walks away scot-free and in a sense bribes Green Arrow. So I, that was very troubling. And I think that's clever of Mike Grell. But also, I just am very uncomfortable with that aspect of it. It's an interesting position because that character has everything you say, but um, he he's not pointing a gun at all, anyone. And right. so I think that's why he escapes, because they're only killing people that are putting them in mortal danger. But um, he's clearly, I mean, he's pouring yes. the cocaine away right in front of uh, Green Arrow. He's clearly the 
the the original source of many of these problems that Green Arrow's been fighting. Right, but he's also not the head Kahuna, who's the person we see in the next few pages that gets dealt with. Well, the the what the person you're calling the head Kahuna is one one of the criminals that the U.S. government is getting in bed with, so that they can, mm-hmm. or or these representatives of the U.S. government who are illegally doing this stuff. So in a way, this it. This guy, the the head of all the evil company that's smuggling cocaine and killing people, is he's like the head of the mob, right? But mm-hmm. so you kill the head of the mob, but you don't kill the government people who've been working with the head of the mob um, and allowing them to do what they do. I don't know. Anyway, I don't know what Mike Grell intended there, uh, but it, it plays in a number of ways, and that money comes back up in the hunter moon uh comic issues that i read well it's weird too that um oliver takes that money and is at the end says to dinah like hey we got a raise basically like we're taking the money which i got a hell of a raise today (laughs) (laughs) and it shouldn't he be upset that the government guy got away with it and there's no evidence i i feel like again this is one of those transition points that i feel is like weakly written but i because there's a few implications when that guy's talking a he's taking away the evidence and then he says the rangers are going to be up there faster than you can say smoky bear which i think is implying that if oliver does anything to him there's not going to be any evidence and there's going to be people there with consequences which also given the nature of all the killings and they haven't been dealt with fully yet would mean that the um the robin hood killer who's been throughout here and not dealt with yet would then be pinned on green arrow right and he's saying, you know, you won't want to testify in court, implying, well, you're mm-hmm. now a killer, so you can't go in court and testify. Well, it's actually interesting as part of it's also there playing on the fact that he's a superhero and he can't do anything in these more real world circumstances that Grell's putting him in. Because what are you going to say your name is? What are you going to say your occupation is? Mm-hmm. Hero? Yeah. Right. But he's pointing more to like, you can't say your green arrow in court. That's not right. Is this that's kind of pointing out that you to really be a vigilante you do have to do your own killing you can't because you can't go to court and so constantly spider-man and all these other people are just like leaving bad guys tied up for the police to come get but where's the evidence you know spider-man's been in court in multiple issues though Uh so the marvel universe functions a little differently (laughs) yeah but you know what i mean in general Mm -hmm. superheroes it's not this is more undermining of the superhero cliches. So mm-hmm. it's very clever, but it's just also very unsatisfying that he, the hero can't touch this one guy. And he seems, it's hard to know what he feels about that $200,000, but I guess he's okay with it. And I guess he's not, the other thing is I was not clear. Is he not, maybe in some previous uh, continuity, he lost his fortune or something. Also, this guy's pouring cocaine out of a briefcase. As long as you have the briefcase, you should be able to find trace amounts of cocaine, exactly. even with 80s forensics. So I. Yeah. And couldn't you uh, use your arrow, your uh, rope arrow to tie him up with and just leave him in in a ravine full of cocaine? <laughs> right. For the Rangers to find. 
Yeah, that's another. And then, and then people will ask, well, how does this uh, CIA agent end up in a pile of cocaine out in the outskirts of Seattle or wherever we are? Yeah, the, yeah. There's some things that were meant to be more realistic, but if you apply a little more thought to, just felt like you said unsatisfying because it feels like yeah. there's clearly connections here. You have to make them, and if you're going to pin anyone, you have to be able to pin this guy as well. Right. So it just and why not put an arrow through him? <laughs> Even like the muggers earlier. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Why not do something to him? Yeah. And I don't know, you know, it would be interesting if Mike Grell does revisit that. Maybe this character shows up again and maybe eventually yes. uh, Green Arrow manages to uh, ruin other operations of his. Right. And so with all that said, like, I see why this isn't um, beheld to a lot of the other classics of the era, because as a story, there are a lot of weaker points. But I also feel like there's a lot of strengths in this work, and I haven't heard actually too many people mention this. Well, I feel like I used to hear people mention it a lot. Not in, It hasn't, in the, the current chat about comics, it doesn't seem to be amongst the classics. But I feel like, you know, in the past 20 years, I've heard it come up pretty frequently and, and, uh, and also be cited as the beginning of people who are fans of Green Arrow. This is where their fandom for Green Arrow started. I also feel like maybe in some ways it was usurped as this like origin or kicking off or greater Green Arrow story when uh, Green Arrow Year One came out. And maybe did Mike Grell write that? Take... Did he? I don't know. I'm asking you because I have no idea. No, it was Andy Diggle and Jock. I basically read Green Arrow in those seventies comics that we talked about at the beginning and then picked it up again in new 52, mm. which was also the time where I started, you know, connecting to everybody on YouTube about comics. And so I would hear people talk about longbow hunters and Mike Grell's run. So you skipped all best years of green. Air. And then I heard, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then I heard people complaining about how they had de-aged him and whatnot. I will um, say in the, uh, kevin smith to philip hester and so on run mm -hmm. um it was um oddfellows thoughts travis who put me on that run because he was saying it was his favorite and so i bought the entire thing because i had a chance to get it for a cheap shot and read through it and it was it's an excellent run and i feel you could skip the kevin smith stuff for the most part just know that there's a few important plot points and just take them as they come up again and read through because it's great. So which stuff. is the run? Which is the run after Kevin Smith that I should read? Phil Hester. Phil did Hester. The okay. And yeah, there's a couple other creators on the book throughout that entire volume, but by and large, it's great. I think the Kevin Smith stuff is overrated, but it's at the front of it. <laughs> and then with with the further stuff that Mike Grell wrote, he didn't draw it. I'm wondering, is this the last Mike Grell art? A major uh, comic book thing. A guy who was drawing nonstop since the uh, early 70s. Maybe 1987 was the last time he did a lot of drawing. Did you have some final thoughts? Or you pretty much stated them already? I don't know. Yeah, I think we went through most of it. I just... It's a really interesting comic. I think it's worth checking out and... I don't know. It's just uh, there's a few points that are 
a little shocking even today. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think well for me with the politics, it's a reminder of you can have a, a mix of different politics. There's aspects of this that could be interpreted as what we would currently call conservative view on crime and a very um anti the uh, actions of the Republican administration at the time at the same on this by the same token. And a bit of a commentary about the um uh, what's the proper name for it when in during World War II where they um put all the American Japanese into camps and the treatment they may have received. Yes. In the name of the government. Anyway, I'm I'm glad that you got me to read this because I probably it probably would have been one of those things that you know, there's just so much to read. I probably just would never have gotten around to it. But now, and I found, you know, other than this, I had to buy this digitally, but um, by this, I mean the Longbow Hunters. But other than that, I was able to get um, all the other Mike Grell Green Arrow on Hoopla. So I'll be able to read all that digitally for free. Which is weird because this is connected. So I don't know why. Yeah. You know, who? it's hard to understand when you look at these library services what things they include and what they don't. And I'm sure it's all decided on by by the, you know, DC or whoever. Let's, let's give Hoopla this amount of stuff and then hold back some other stuff that maybe people will buy. Yeah. So maybe they have hopes of, of selling more Longbow Hunter trades or maybe just selling it on, on Comixology as they did to me. <laughs> Right. It, it hasn't, the trade hasn't been in print for a while. So, uh, yeah, it's hot. We will, we will no doubt be back from the dead for Halloween. For Halloween. Um, we may have to drink some blood or I don't know, uh, dodge some silver bullets, but we'll be back. 